Gone is a podcast about people who have gone missing from the United States and Canada. These people are daughters, sons, sisters, and aunties. They didn't just disappear. Someone, somewhere, knows something. This is Janelle Feller. And I'm Katie Nordby. These are the stories of Sasha Marie Krause and Corrine Ersted. Sasha Marie Krause has gone missing from the Farmington, New Mexico area. She was last seen leaving her residence at 8 p.m. on January 18, 2020. She was reported missing at 3 a.m. on January 19. Her family from Texas are in the area searching for her. The search and rescue team is made up of trained individuals and tracking dogs. The investigators are obtaining surveillance from local businesses and interviewing witnesses. Sasha lives and works in the Mennonite community. This area is known as Kraut Mesa. She worked at the Lamp and Light Publishers on Road 5577 in Farmington. Lamp and Light Publishers produces written material for the Mennonite ministry in English, Spanish, and French. The Mennonite Church is a lesser-known third wing of the Protestant Church. They are pacifists who follow the teaching of the New Testament. They wear plain and humble clothes without ornamentation. The women wear long dresses with a cape covering from shoulder to waist. It covers the buttons. They also wear their hair long and cover it with a small white cap. The men wear a modest shirt without a tie and long trousers. Sasha's vehicle was parked at the church. Her purse, keys, money, and credit cards were all accounted for. This is in the Farmington, uh, New Mexico area, which is located in San Juan County. It has a population of about 46,000 people. It's the commercial hub for the county and the four-corner region of four states. Farmington is near a junction of three important highways, U.S. Highway 550, U.S. Highway 64, and New Mexico Highway 371. The, temperature, the temperatures in January range from 20 to 40 degrees. The primary industry in San Juan County is the production of petroleum, natural gas, and coal. There have been a number of rumors reported and shared on social media about Sasha's disappearance. We will not talk about them here. We will only share the facts as we know them. Sasha Marie Krause is Caucasian, 27 years old. She's 5 foot 3 with brown eyes, freckles, and long brown hair. If you have any information about her disappearance, call the San Juan County Sheriff's Office at 505-334-6622 and ask for Detective Stray. So she was a, a Mennonite. Yep. Do you think that that has anything to do with um, maybe not knowing a whole bunch of information about her? Or just because they're not, you know, they're not so much out in the public very much. They're, they kind of keep to themselves a little bit. Well, I think part of it is is that it's just so very new. Yeah. Uh, we're, we're, today is the 31st. And so, so it, it is so current that there's not a lot of information about it. I think that's part of it. Yeah. I think part of it is is that the 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 people that participate in it are the, or that are members of the Mennonite church are not worldly people. They're not in other words um in their their clothing is plain and humble. Um and their lives are I would say kind of the same. And so there's 
not a lot of grandiosity or right. striving to to be better than one another in their in their culture. Right. And so so there may not be a lot to report, but we don't know anything if she um, if she was engaged and married. We don't. It, it appears as if she's she's apparently from Texas, but I don't know any of that information. Yeah. Who her family is, who her siblings are. That information has been kept very private, and maybe that's on purpose. Yeah, because it is such a current case. Right. This is a this story was recommended to us by one of our listeners, hmm. and um, and so yeah, it, it's interesting because to me it's it's interesting because we don't I don't ever see or hear of anybody of the Mennonite faith, um, in the news. Yeah. Um. For anything, right, and so so it's very unusual. I think that 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 this person is of the Mennonite faith. It's just yeah. not very, very. Um, it's very unusual. Yeah, and I I don't think it has anything to do with the reason that they were caught or the reason that this something happened to her. I think right. this is just this. It doesn't it didn't cause it. It's just it's just um, the way that it is. But well, and I think too. I mean. The way that they dress is is very humble. Mm-hmm. Um, it it's not it's not a way that would cause people to pay attention. That would that would cause any sort of undue attention, basically. Right. But right. at the same time, when you see somebody dressed in Mennonite um, attire. attire, you notice because it's so different. It's so different than what we wear. So right. I think that that's a piece too that you would notice. You know, right. if you if you saw her. Um, you would notice that it was somebody of Mennonite faith. Right, and in this area, in this little area, this Crouch Mesa area, it sounds like that there's a church, there's a business, there's probably a lot of people in that area that are of the Mennonite faith. Sure. So that's um, that's not unusual. But, but like somebody dressed in a much more um, flamboyant manner, uh, who appeared to have money because of that flamboyance or whatever yeah. that might have been targeted because of that. Right. Uh, whereas, whereas somebody of the Mennonite faith um, does not. They dress very similar to each other. Yeah. And, and um, also, all of her belongings were accounted for. That her credit card, her purse, any money that she had, her car, the keys to her car were all still there. And we don't know why she was why her vehicle was at the church other than. She the ch- it, it sounds like the church, her home and her and the work, <clears throat> like they were all they were all very close yeah. in this in this small little area. Sure, like not a great distance from from each other, and so, um, and it 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 uh, that's that's what it sounded like. Sure. It just was very close proximity. So, but I thought it was important when I looked at the um, when I looked at the map to see where Farmington was. It is, it's like a, it's like a spider web, all of it converging in that, that Farmington area, that there is quite a few roads, major roads that come out of that Farmington area. And which means that, that there are people that are, that are driving through, right, through that area. Um, and uh, that's, I don't know, but it just seems like it would be a, a prime target if somebody wanted to abduct somebody and take them someplace else Um, yeah but yeah and she's a she's a young woman she's only 27 years old and uh yeah and it just happened very recently and so the hope is is that something stands out to somebody and they 
and uh, they're able to find her and return her home. Because every day that goes by that she's not found is concerning. Corrine mm-hmm. Erstad was five years old in 1992. She lived in Invergrove Heights, Minnesota with her mother, stepfather, and two brothers, aged seven and eight. With a population of roughly 34,000, Invergrove Heights is located in Dakota County and is considered middle class. Life was not easy for Corrine and her family. Her and her brothers spent time in foster care when they were younger while their mother was treated for a cocaine addiction. Their only source of income in 1992 was welfare. Her and her brother spent a lot of time at the park that was located behind their home. On the evening of June 1st, 1992, it was no different. Around 7.30 p.m., Corrine left for the park. She was wearing a white sundress with a pink and green watermelon pattern and no shoes. Her brothers went to the park five minutes after she left the house, but Corrine was nowhere to be found. She was reported missing two hours later. She was five years old. She was so little. This is just right behind their house? Yeah. Oh my gosh. I just, I guess maybe I'm not a parent, so maybe I'm just a big chicken, but that just seems really scary to send a, to have a five-year-old go to the park by themselves. Right. A child playing at the park said he saw a little girl speaking with an unidentified man. He said the girl matched Corrine's description and she was playing with the man's dog, although it was never verified that that girl was Corrine. Canine units were brought in and they followed Corrine's scent to a trailer 10 miles away from her home. The trailer belonged to a 24-year-old named Robert Guevara. Now, Corrine knew Guevara. In fact, the day she disappeared, she told her mother that he had molested her which was an important detail that Corrine's mother forgot to tell authorities at first. Guevara apparently dated Corrine's mother briefly before she married Corrine's stepfather. It was said that Guevara would stay at Corrine's house when he got too drunk to make it home. According to some witnesses, sometimes he slept in Corrine's bed with her. What? This was apparent, from what I read, no, I don't know if it's true, but from what, I, from what was reported, um, this was common. Um, for her, for him to not be able to go home or, you know, for whatever reason, it was, it was common for him to, to stay at their house. Well, when you say it, the way that you said it, it made it seem as if he stayed in the bed with her. He did. That's what some, that's what witnesses said. Whether that's true, I don't know, but it was common for him to stay at their house. Guevara had been at Corrine's house the day she went missing and left around the same time Corrine went to the park. There's mention of a storage locker and his home. It's not clear if these are at the same place or not, but when authorities searched the storage locker, they found a dress identical to the one Corrine was last seen wearing and a pair of girls' underwear. Both items were stained with blood and semen. Blood stains were also found on a shower curtain located in the Guevara home. When his fiance was questioned, she said he had made a comment to her that he threw up three times when he was at the storage locker. When she was shown a photo of the shower curtain, she said it looked like the one in a garbage bag that she saw in their home the night Corrine disappeared. Guevara denied having anything to do with Corrine's disappearance. His alibi was that he was drunk and driving to Wisconsin when she went missing. I am so upset about this. It is so, can we never do a story about a five-year-old child ever again? I'm not going to lie, it gets worse. <sighs> Corrine's mother and stepfather took a polygraph test and passed. Guevara refused to take one. He was arrested on June 5th, 1992. 
just four days after Corrine went missing. DNA on the dress, underwear, and shower curtain would later show that it belonged to both Corrine and Guevara. When his case went to trial, there had never been a murder conviction in Minnesota without a body. What, what year was this? 1982. Oh. Prior to this trial, Minnesota did not allow full usage of DNA evidence at trials. So they were limited to having an expert come in and say that the DNA patterns were consistent to that of the suspect. Guevara's trial lasted three months. When the case was given to the jury, they deliberated for 52 hours over a period of six days. Almost a year after Corrine Ersted vanished, on April 3rd, 1993, the jury found Robert Guevara not guilty on all what? charges, and he was free to go. There aren't even words. How? Because because of the DNA evidence? That it was well, so new? That it was, they didn't believe it? Well, from what I read, um, I can't remember if it was the prosecutor or if it was the judge in the case, but he said that at the time, they weren't allowed to explain the science, the science behind DNA. Okay. So they had to bring in this expert to say, you know, yes, these are, these are similar. You know, okay. these, these look like they are this, from this person. But they weren't able to um, fully explain DNA to the jurors. So it made it kind of confusing from, that, from what I understand. And you said that there had never been a, a, a case tried without a body. Right. Before this. Right. And, and there was new scientific stuff that people were unsure of. Right. And from oh my, my understanding, gosh. it was after this trial, shortly after this trial, that that DNA law was changed to be able to allow... Oh, um, an explanation of the science. Right. Okay. Right. Oh, my gosh. At least two jurors later told reporters that the absence of a body played a role in their, in their acquittal. The prosecutor in the case, Jim Backstrom, told the, the Star Tribune in 2013 that he still keeps a photo of Corrine on his desk. He said, quote, It's a terrible tragedy that I was not able to obtain justice for the victim's family. That's something that will haunt me for the rest of my life. There's not too many days that I don't think of this case. Corrine's story doesn't end there. In 2017, Robert Guevara's brother, Jerry, was arrested and later convicted on two counts of felony third-degree criminal sexual conduct for fathering two children with a girl that he had authority over. What does that mean? Like he was a foster parent? Um, I'll, I'll, I'll get okay. to that. Okay. Yeah. So Jerry was 53 at the time that he was charged and had a relationship with a girl 15 years earlier in Washington County, Minnesota. The girl was a minor when she gave birth to those children. The two apparently met through the girl's mother, who Jerry dated for several years. So he was like a father to uh, the girl before they began a romantic relationship and then went on to have nine children together. So the only reason why I'm telling you this part is because authorities thought that Jerry would be more than willing to talk about his brother's involvement in Corrine's disappearance in exchange for a plea deal, but Jerry did not. Investigators knew, though, that even if Jerry did offer up information about Robert's involvement, Robert could not be tried again anyway because of double jeopardy laws. The goal was really to just find Corrine. Corrine's body has never been found. Despite the acquittal, investigators still believe that Robert Guevara was involved in her disappearance. Corrine would be 33 years old on February 17th. She was five years old when she vanished. She is Caucasian with brown hair and brown eyes. She was last seen wearing a white sundress with a pink and green watermelon print. 
She has scars on her forehead, her lower lip, and near her left eye. The tip of her left ring finger is missing. She has a mole on the left side of her lower back. Her ears were pierced because she wasn't wearing earrings when she disappeared. She also has a cowlick on the right side of her head. If you have any information about Corrine Ersted's disappearance, please call the Inver Grove Heights Police Department Missing Persons Unit at 651-450-2533. This is so upsetting because he is just in his 50s. He's been a free this whole time. Yeah. He's got to be in his late 50s, probably. Well, so he was, I think that he was 24 when this went down, so maybe not even 50. Uh, he had he had the child's dress yeah. her underwear with blood and semen uh, yeah and how many other children suffered right because it's just maddening it is maddening I almost didn't do this story because it was so upsetting and there's so much more information about this story I actually listened to a podcast called Murderish um, and she she covered a great deal of information um, oh, about this good. case, um, and it, it was it's very interesting. But it was it was difficult to write this story because it's so upsetting, and because she was only five years old. It's upsetting that that at five that she and her brothers, who at the time were seven and eight, had already been in foster care. That's upsetting. Right. That at that young age that they had already spent time in foster care. Yeah. And. Every single thing that you said about this case makes me more upset. Yeah. They spent time in foster care at that very young age. They went to the park by themselves. She told her mother that she was molested. And not only did the mother not report it, but allowed that man in her home yeah. that day. Um, the, the, the scars and, and the... She was missing the tip of her finger, and there's a lot of scars on a little little five year old. Yeah. I mean, and I guess, I guess maybe that that happened. Well, uh, I happens, mean, you know, kids are clumsy when they're little, right? Um, but uh, there's just so much in this case that's just it's so just so awful. Yeah. It's just so awful, and then he goes free. Yeah. And he had a brother who was, um, did. Ve- who who had a sexual relationship with someone that he had um, that he had kind of served in a in a position as a father figure for, and well, and you know also Robert served in a, a kind of a father figure for Corrine and her brother uh, for a short amount of time, and I didn't even want to talk about the brother Jerry, but I thought that it was important because it kind of shows the mo that this, uh, you know, it wasn't just Robert that did these things. Um, but also that, you know, when Jerry was arrested, they really hoped that he would turn on his brother. Yeah. But even then, you know, with double jeopardy laws, he can, ne- he can never be tried for that same thing ever again. It would have to be something different. Yep. So he can't be tried for her murder. Right. Because he already was. About it. Yeah. Oh, man. And all this time has gone by. There's, um... I remember having a conversation with someone, and I was surprised. It was a difficult conversation, and and in that conversation, we talked about how in her life, in her family, they had a history of molestation, of sexual abuse in the family, and it went back generations. 
it was just kind of the norm. It was the norm. In, in her family, and I, I never thought I never, I, not I not Corrine's family. This person no, that you were talking no, to, no, right, I, right. I had a, a a private conversation with somebody, and and I I remember being shocked, um, because this person was educated, um, sophisticated. I I, I had my, I have my own stereotypes, my own prejudices, my own things, and I I never thought of it of of um child abuse, sexual assault, um, child sexual assault being part of your family heritage. It never occurred to me. It, and I'm, I'm blessed because it never occurred to me. But it was so upsetting to think of that. And in this case, it that may be, that may be what happened in this family. Right. Um, um, it just was, it's, it's just upsetting. And I hope that we never, ever do a story about a five-year-old child ever again. I know. I, that we that there's a story to do about a five year old child makes me upset. Um, do you have a picture of her? Um, I will have pictures of okay. her. Um, but there were actually a couple stats that I wanted to share about um, child sexual abuse. So according to the Darkness to Light website, children in low socioeconomic status households are three times as likely to be identified as a victim of child sexual abuse. Children who live in rural areas are almost two times more likely to be identified as a victim of child abuse. And children who live with a single parent that has a live-in partner are at a 20 times more likely to be victims of child sexual abuse than children living with both biological parents. Wow. It's astounding. And I know from our from the statistic that we that we work with in our in our work that um, sexual assaults against children happen during the weekdays between three and six p.m. Sure. Well, and it's that's when a parent is still yep. at work. Well, and it's more than it's more likely to happen by by somebody that the child knows. Right, the statistics show, yep. and I think that's one. I think that's really something that's really important. And that happened in this case, in both of these cases. I think we talked about the brother. Yep. That the aunt Therese, <clears throat> that these young women were both sexually assaulted by people that they knew. Yeah. Um, we want to think. We want to think that this happens. You know that stranger danger that it that it's somebody you don't know, somebody that you've never met jumping out from behind the bushes. Right, yeah. right. When that's not the case no. at all. The truth is, is that children are most likely to be sexually assaulted by somebody that they know and trust. And that also goes for women. That in also general. goes for it also goes for women. Yeah. That's right. Um, uh, whether they're in college, you know, or uh, as adult as adults, uh, it's. It's always the, the statistics show that uh, you're most likely to be sexually assaulted by somebody that you know and trust. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Katie. I think that this information is important to talk about, even though it's really awful. It is. But it is one way for us to keep safe, keep safe yeah. um, and also to remember some of these statistics. Again, these statistics are based on historical fact. Right. And it could cause someone to say, oh, maybe my child is too young to stay at home alone. Yeah. Um, having or a live-in. walk home from school. Or having a live-in boyfriend um, actually puts my child in, in, in danger. Well, and I think, I think it's important to share, too, because I feel like, I mean, I obviously know these stats, 
but I feel like everybody else knows these stats too, but they don't. They don't. They don't because they don't do this work. They don't read these these articles. They right. don't know these stories. Right. And so I think it's important to share those that information with people who don't even realize. Well, and I think that I think that while you, <clears throat> I, I don't think this information is common. I think that it is that the the stranger danger kind of thing is something that is really is really more prominently um, touted in the in movies in yeah. books in everything because um, actually that's less scary uh, yeah. than the idea that um, that somebody that you know yeah. could serve could be a predator and I think that it's really, I think that that's actually much scarier yeah. and harder to avoid yeah. um, in many cases. So I, I think, well, and I, th- I also think harder that. to, harder to, to find out too, you know, harder to notice, harder to, because it wouldn't necessarily be uncommon for, you know, my friend to be talking to my child. It wouldn't be uncommon for uncle so-and-so to be, hanging out at the house it wouldn't be uncommon for right so i think that it's harder to identify those things because people that you know as an adult it's not uncommon for them to be around your children right and but i i think that when you talk about grooming behaviors right which we talk about grooming behaviors of children oftentimes i think that the grooming behaviors start with the adults the parents sure. of children Gaining their trust. Gaining their trust. To be um, with their children. Right. Yeah. Gaining, th- gaining their trust as a coach, yeah. um, as a neighbor, as as anything. That they start actually grooming the parent yeah. before they groom the child. And and I think it's hard for us to imagine somebody that we know and maybe love and harming trust. our and trust and harming our children. And, and that the statistics show that that's that too we have to be aware of and that's what we have to be concerned about um yeah yeah i'll put a link on the website um linking to more stats on that and also what parents can do okay help keep their children safe yeah because i think that here today now we can't help green right with any luck we can find her her body and return her to her family but um we can help other parents and children you know this makes me when i think about the statistics and about the reality of things uh makes me very afraid makes me very afraid and very concerned about about the safety of our collective children in this world and uh and what we can do to really be of service to them when we know the high cost of daycare and the low availability of it. Right. And especially in rural areas, especially in rural areas. Though I don't know that it's, I don't know how available it is in, in right. metro areas right. too. I mean, yeah, there are things like boys and girls club and, and that helps, but it, uh, it just, yeah. Exposure to our children and things that we need to be concerned about and things we, Things that we think we need to be afraid of, when actually it's it's often things that we, uh, the people that we know and trust, that we need to be aware of and concerned about. That means everybody. <laughs> that means everybody. And that's the scary part is that yeah. it means everybody. Yeah. But I think knowing what to look for, knowing what to watch for, um, 
and obviously believing your child if they ever ever report anything, ever report anything believe them you know it, it's better to be safe than sorry to believe them at first and find out that you know it wasn't this wasn't actually what happened or this wasn't really the case or um whatever we know that children don't usually make those things up right they so. don't have the nope. nope they don't have the knowledge right so you always you always believe the child um until there's reason not to i guess which is a heavy burden we ask that you do not reach out to the families or post names of possible suspects on social media missing person photos along with information and articles used for these cases can be found on our website at gone-podcast.com So um, <laughs> after that heavy, heavy story, I'm glad to have a distraction, a weekly distraction. And uh, my weekly distraction are fun facts, Perfect. or maybe not so fun facts. Um, interesting. In, inter- or fun. maybe not so interesting. Okay. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, so did you know that Charles Darwin's personal pet tortoise didn't die until recently? They live forever. Okay, technically she wasn't a pet. But after his tour of the Galapagos Islands, uh, Charles Darwin brought back a five-year-old tortoise he named Harriet. She outlived her adopter by 124 years, ultimately making it to 176 years old. She lived out her final years as part of the family of Steve, the crocodile hunter. Oh, sure. Erwin in Australia when she passed away in 2006. Wow. Isn't that amazing? It is amazing. Harriet. Uh, the average person will spend six months of their lives waiting for red lights to turn green. Oh. <laughs> That's not true for us. Not for us, no. 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 In bigger cities, though, you can tell that they take a lot longer to change. Ours here don't feel like they take that long. Well, and we might be the only person waiting, so. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Did you know a bolt of lightning contains enough energy to toast 100,000 slices of bread? And your face. Neat. Well, that uh, each bolt of lightning contains more than 5 billion joules of energy. Oh, cool. Um, so the average 1,000-watt two-slice toaster uh, can be powered for 84,000 minutes. That's just enough to slice over 1,000 slices of toast. English wow. muffins or bagels, if you prefer. Wow. And your face. Sherophobia is the w- word for the irrational fear of being happy. Oh. Maybe it's cheerophobia. <laughs> Maybe. It's spelled C-H-E-R, so I... Oh. Cherophobia. Um, so, people who suffer from cheerophobia are often afraid, crippling so, of doing anything that might lead to happiness. Oh, good That's job. sad. This form of anxiety disorder can should be treated with medicine and much stronger than, uh, with medicine much stronger than laughter, love, and therapy. <laughs> oh my God, that would be the worst. Uh, did you know that you can hear a blue whale's heartbeat from two miles away? Wow, underwater. The blue whale is the largest animal on the planet, weighing up to 150 tons and measuring 90 feet long. Uh, so, so this massive animal has a massive heartbeat. Has a massive heart. The, the 
heart is the size of a small, <laughs> small car. Mm. A blue whale's heart can weigh up to 1,300 pounds. I can't even imagine. Oh, my gosh. Um, to move, move blood through its massive body. Um, uh, its heart only beats 8 to 10 times per minute. Huh. Uh, in 1992, nearly 30,000 rubber ducks were lost at sea and are still being discovered today. Over 25 years ago, a cargo ship traveling to Hong from Hong Kong to the United States accidentally lost a shipping crate in the Pacific Ocean. Inside the crate were 28,000 rubber ducks. Oh, my gosh. Um, as, as rubber ducks continue to pop up along the shores from Australia to Alaska, They've enlightened our understanding of ocean currents. Oh. They have been all the, found all the way in, into the Atlantic Ocean, while others have been frozen in the Arctic ice. Wow. Helpful, but pollution. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. 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 Uh, there's a specific, a Manhattan-specific ant. Um, there, this this ant is on the Broadway medians between 63rd and 76th Street. Um, biologists discovered a new species of ant. It oh. is called the Manhattan ant. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Scientists are hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> the inventor of the Frisbee was turned into a Frisbee after he died. So what was it called before? Well, so the inventor of the Frisbee was turned into a Frisbee after he died. Oh, Steady I'm sorry. Ed. I was confused. Okay, gotcha. Steady Ed. This is nickname. Kubrick. Invented the frisbee in the 1950s, and he went on to uh, invent the sport of disc golf in the 70s. He lived for frisbee. Um, when he died in 2002, his final wish was to have his ashes turned into a frisbee, so that uh, it was his father. It was so that his son uh, could play with them after he was dead, and maybe end up on somebody's roof. Yeah, that's a that's a little gruesome. <laughs> I thought you were saying that the frisbee wasn't invented until or it wasn't called a frisbee until after he would die. Right. But no, it he was, was called made frisbee. into a frisbee. He was gotcha. made into a frisbee. Steady Ed. Um, I, I mean, what, I, what, I, that's what if a dog grabbed it? And that, I just, I don't know. Well, you know that in college, when my freshman year of college, we were served uh, our meal on a paper plate on a frisbee. <laughs> Oh, sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, there's a bridge exclusively for squirrels. So this is, in, this is, so to provide safe passage for squirrels attempting to cross the N44 motorway, Maryland officials built a rodent-only bridge. While it was, it was a kind-hearted gesture, it might not have been the most economically sensible thing, costing 120,000 pounds over a two-year span. Uh, the bridge was used by just five squirrels. In 2014, three squirrels, and in 2015, two squirrels were spotted on the bridge, the government said in a statement. Squirrels. Well, I mean, I think... I mean, did, other, did other animals use it, though? Like, human animals? No, I mean, like, deer or, like... I mean, because that would be helpful. For, right, it was supposed to be for a rodent only, and how do you keep... How do you teach a rodent to only go on this road? When, when actually, every time they cross the road, they die, and so they quit crossing the road. There aren't rodents to teach. Trained rodents. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, only I mean, the idea behind it's nice, but right. maybe not practical. So subway footlongs aren't a footlong. 
I knew this. I suspected it all along. And finally, uh, did you know that Marie Curie's notebooks are still radioactive? Mm. The mother of modern physics was known for her work with radioactive materials and the discovery of elements like polonium and radium. Unfortunately, her research took a hefty toll on her life, leading to um, a plastic anemia, which caused her death. The exposure to radioactivity didn't just affect her, it affected most of her belongings, including her clothes, furniture, and books. Now, more than a century later, her notebooks have to be stored in a lead box, as they are still radioactive and will be for another 1,500 years. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Interesting. They were good. <laughs> they were. They were good. The rodent bridge. So mine are 19 things you might not know were invented by women. Oh. So these aren't really funny, but they're just, it's very interesting. Okay. The paper bag. America got a brand new paper bag when cotton mill worker Margaret Knight invented a machine to make them with a flat square bottom in 1868. Paper bags originally looked more like envelopes. A man named Charles Annan saw her design and tried to patent the idea first. Knight filed a lawsuit and won the patent fair and square in 1871. Yay! <laughs> Kevlar. Lightweight, high tensile Kevlar, five times stronger than steel, will take a bullet for you. DuPont chemist Stephanie Wolzek, I'm not sure if I pronounced that right, accidentally invented it while trying to perfect a lighter fiber for car tires and earned a patent in 1966. Wow, I didn't realize it had been around that long. I guess. The foot pedal trash can. Lillian Gilbreth improved existing inventions with small but ingenious tweaks. In early 1900s, she designed the shelves inside refrigerator doors, made the can opener easier to use, and tidied up cleaning with the foot pedal trash can. Gilbreth is most, most famous for her pioneering work in efficiency management ergonomics with her husband, Frank. Two of their children, Frank Jr. and Ernestine Gilbreth, humorously wrote about their home work collaboration <laughs> in the book Cheaper by the Dozen. So she saw issues. Yes. And corrected them. And fixed it. Monopoly. Elizabeth Maggie created the landlord's game described as the economic theory of Georgism, teaching players about the unfairness of land grabbing, the disadvantages of renting, and the need for a single land value tax for owners. Fun stuff. Maggie patented the board game in 1904 and self-published it in 1906. Nearly 30 years later, a man named Charles Darrow rejiggered the board design and message and sold it to Parker Brothers as Monopoly. The company bought Maggie's patent for the original game for $500 and no royalties. So, that, But they bought her patent, not this guy who basically stole the idea, which is good. But it was only $500. And no royalties. And no royalties. But I suppose in 1906, that was a lot of money. Well, well no, it was 30 years later. So 1936, I guess. Well, I, it's, that sounds like the most boring game. It does. Ever. It will cause family problems now. Yeah. I just it's don't still want the most boring game <laughs> ever. I love Monopoly, love but it is the one? worst. It takes so long. It does take so long. Until somebody goes bankrupt. Or just flips the board over and walks away. <laughs> um, windshield wipers. Drivers were skeptical when Mary Anderson invented 
the first manual wipers in 1903. They thought it was safer to drive with rain and snow obscuring the road than to pull a lever to clear it. But by the time Anderson's patent expired in 1920, windshield wipers were cleaning up. Cadillac was the first to include them in every car model, and other companies soon followed. So her patent was, was created when? She invented it in 1903. Wow. The electric version was um, created in 1917. The dishwasher, patented in 1886, the first dishwasher combined high water pressure, a wheel, a boiler, and a wire rack, like the ones still used for dish for dish drying. Inventor Josephine Cochran never used it herself, but made life easier for her servants. For her servants. For her servants. Well, I mean, that was nice still, still nice. And, and actually, I, I use it today, and I'm grateful. Yes, I am too. Alphabet blocks. Children don't read books by anti-suffrage author Adeline Beattie Whitney these days, and that's probably for the better. But the wooden block she invented in 1882 still helped them learn their ABCs. Oh, good. Yeah. Marine signal flares. Communication between ships was once limited to color flags, lanterns, and screaming things like, Thar she blows, really loudly. Martha Costin didn't come up with the idea for signal flares all by herself. She found plans in a notebook that belonged to her late husband. The determined widow spent 10 years working with chemists and pyrotechnic experts to make the idea a reality, but she was only named administratrix. In 1859 patent, Mr. Costin got credit as the inventor. Which he was uh, her, her husband. Her husband, yes. Can I just, but not, there's a, the word was adjusted, administrator, or it was adjusted to, to, to Administratrix. a female. To a female version yes, somehow. Which less I appreciate. How less than. Oh. Oh. Maybe not appreciate then. <laughs> <laughs> Scotchgard. Apparently, it takes a stain to fight one. In 1952, chemist, 3M chemist Patsy Sherman was perplexed when some fluorochemical rubber spilled on a lab assistant's shoe and wouldn't come off. Without changing the color of the shoe, the stain recalled water, oil, and other liquids. Sherman and her co-inventor, Samuel Smith, called it Scotchgard, and the rest is preserving your couch. I love Scotchgard. I know. Computers. Women in computer science have a, role, have a role model in Grace Hopper. She and Howard Aiken designed Harvard's Mark I computer, a five-ton room-sized machine in 1944. Hopper invented the computer that translated written, written language into computer code and coined the terms bug and debugging when she had to remove moths from the device. Literally debugging. Oh in, 19, yeah, in 1959, Hopper was part of the team that developed COBOL, one of the first modern programming languages. COBOL. Which I'm not really sure what that is. Yeah. Is that what it says? Is that the word? COBOL, yeah. Um, that was, uh, <laughs> that, so I was in college. I, I graduated high school in 1986, and the, the COBOL, COBOL was a, a program that you could learn. Oh, okay. And in 1986, they had the mainframe of a computer was stored in a separate building, air-conditioned, elevated. The floor was elevated. It was air-conditioned, temperature-controlled room. Um, and you would have to insert disks, floppy disks, sure. to get a program to run. I remember and, floppy disks. Yeah, and that matrix printer was crazy. 
It's crazy. That was that, that, 1986. Well, but that's crazy that that really wasn't that long ago. Really? And I now carry my whole computer and everything in my phone. Honestly, I think it's that crazy. the cell phone that you have uh, probably had more memory capacity than those large mainframes did that were that took up a whole building. Um, yeah. All that. I mean, it's just amazing it how is. far things have come. It is. Uh, last one, Invisible Glass. Catherine Blodgett, General Electric's first female scientist, discovered a way to transfer thin monomolecular coatings of gla- to glass and metals in 1935. The result, glass that eliminated glare and distortion, which revolutionized cameras, microscopes, eyeglasses, and more. Well, I suppose eyeglasses, can you, can you imagine? Like, when you look at old glass, yeah, it's wavy, it's bubbly, right. it's... Yeah, that would really be a problem, especially because, yeah. I mean, I think the glasses can still be heavy today. Oh, yeah. But... Um, My prescription is bad. Yeah. And so they use the technology to make it thinner. Yeah. But if they didn't, I mean, it would be... And, and they're they're thick right now. If they didn't use that technology to make them thinner, it would be... I don't think we'd wear them. They'd be too heavy. Probably. Yeah, have a, some <laughs> kind of mechanism to hold them. Like a hat to hold them on the top of your head. Uh, but I think we'd all suffer from that. Yeah. Would all suffer well, from everything, that, uh, cameras, phones, um, um, everything. So just just glasses. I mean, that that alone, the Fitbit watch that you're wearing. Yeah, I mean, you couldn't have resistance yeah. to that today. So, thanks, Katie. Let's yeah. do it again next week. Sounds good.